All right, this week, uh, we're in our second week of our new series on the Gospel of Mark, um, titled Jesus Doing Work. Um, and our whole, uh, the, whole, the whole thing here is that Jesus shows up. Um, today, we're going to see that Jesus shows up and immediately gets to work redeeming the world. Um, but before we get there, I want to tell you uh, a little story. Um, my wife and daughter and I live on the third floor of an apartment here in Malden in Maplewood Square. Now, it's surprising to a lot of people uh, when we tell them, but we actually like living on the third floor uh, because it's so quiet there. And people are surprised that you like it, though, because they, they just think about the stairs, right? So what we hear all the time is, I bet it stinks to walk up all those stairs all the time. So that's what we hear. But we don't mind the stairs um, at all, really, except for three specific occasions, Unfortunately, each one of them happens every week. But so the first one is laundry day. Um, the second one is grocery day. And that's partially my fault because I insist on carrying all of them up the stairs at one time. So it's not really the stairs fault. And the third one is when the doorbell rings. Okay. We, and it, I, I need to clarify though. It's not that we actually dislike the doorbell ringing. What we don't like is that it rings several times a week and we run downstairs and no one's there. Okay? And at first, we really didn't know what to do with this. So I, I would hear the doorbell ring and then run downstairs and open the door. Because obviously, if they're ringing the bell for me to come from the third floor, it's important, right? So, you know, I'm excited at this point. It's somebody we want to open the door for. So I open the door, and then there's nobody there. There would just be nobody. It's like the porch, and there's the chair, and I'm pretty sure it didn't ring it. And so it's a real letdown. So we started thinking, we, well, we actually, we tried to figure out what was going on. So the first thing we did was we, we thought, well, maybe somebody has a garage door opener. And when they push the garage door opener, it makes our doorbell ring. And that would explain it. But then we realized that 99% of the population of Massachusetts doesn't have a garage door. <laughs> and so the doorbell hypothesis was wrong. So the next option was that someone was pranking us. All right. And after all, our, our friends, Mike and Maggie, live a block, a block and a half away. And why wouldn't they think it was funny to ring our doorbell and then run away? Um, now, of course, they have jobs and a child, and so like, they really don't have time for that. But why wouldn't that be funny? But then it, it's, it would ring at night sometimes, and we would run down, and there's a porch light, like a motion sensor light. And by the time we got down there, there wouldn't be a light on. So we're like, it's not people, we don't think. Although we still got our eyes on you guys. And so we basically, though, we had a good idea it wasn't them. So then we just decided to quit answering the doorbell. All right? And that worked wonderfully. Like, it would ring, and we would just ignore it. And we liked that idea until we found out that our neighbor locked herself out. And our refusal, refusal to answer the doorbell left her, in the third trimester of her pregnancy, out on the front porch in winter. So as you can probably guess... We really don't like our doorbell, nor does our neighbor. And we don't know whether to open it or not when it rings. Like, it's a tough situation. But there's one situation um, that the doorbell is helpful for. And this is probably the sole reason that I haven't thrown it off our balcony. And it's on Sunday nights when our soul care community arrives. Um, we like the doorbell because it's like a two-minute warning in football. Um, there are usually at least a couple of things that I need to do that need to happen, like right at 6.29 um, p.m. 
like one possibility is Naomi will have just spit up, our four-month-old will have just spit up on Mariah or I. And I, I think that's because it's one of our daily performance objectives. And she's an overachiever. Um, or another option is that I'll have neglected to put the snacks out that Mariah prepared um, because there was a football game on or just because I think our soul care community ought to be able to eat before they show up at our house. But um, love you guys anyway, as hungry as you may be. Um, but anyway, when the doorbell rings on Sunday at 629 or 630, we know that we need to finish preparing um, for them to arrive. So we know then that we got 30 steps. There's 30 stairs between the porch and our apartment. And we know we got 30 steps before they're going to be here. So last week, uh, Matt introduced us to the gospel of Mark. And he preached from Mark 1, 1 through 8. And Mark's gospel begins with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we learned last week, is really, really important. um, Because the Old Testament had told us that one would come crying out in the wilderness. And that that one would be sent to prepare the way for the Lord. And so to make some sense uh, of what John was to do in my, my weak little mind, I, this week I began thinking of him as a little bit like a doorbell. Um, not the faulty one that I have at my house, but an accurate one that would tell God's people, prepare your hearts, the Lord is near. And so when we see John the Baptist, he's yelling, it's time. The one mightier than I is here. Prepare your hearts, O people of God. Be ready. The wait is over. Now, we know that John was the one to prepare the way of the Lord, because Matt told us last week, he showed up wearing camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey. And not only does that mean that he's totally gangsta, it means that he's a prophet, um, the voice crying out in the wilderness. And he baptized a bunch of folks in, uh, in the Jordan River. This baptism was of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as people went to John to be baptized, they weren't being like saved, per se, as we would call it in the church, but they were having their hearts prepared for Jesus. And even though John was more powerful uh, and more famous than most of the people that show up on TMZ every night, um, he wasn't about himself. And by the way, I don't watch TMZ, but if something else is on just before it, it kind of sneaks up on you. So please don't go away thinking I'm watching TMZ. That would be a lie. Also a sin. And, but, but the point is, John was about Jesus. And he existed for and lived to point people towards the one who was coming. And we see that very clearly in that text. We saw that last week. And we see it in that text when John says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay? If, but if we stopped there, um, if we stopped just at that text and didn't progress any further into the Gospel of Mark, we would have just had a doorbell go off and we wouldn't ever know who was on the other side. But Mark is not going to allow us to be confused because there was someone there and someone that we better not miss. And so he's conv- he's like steadfast and not allowing us to be confused. Okay, he immediately opens the door for us in the next verse and shows us who's there. And that's what we're going to be preaching from today. Um, and we'll find out that this whole deal, that, that the voice crying out in the wilderness was no prank. This is no mixed, like faulty signal. 
All right, this door is one that we must open. We must look to. So pray with me, and then we're going to get to work in our text for today. Spirit, I pray that you would come and be with us now. We need your grace bad. We need you to illuminate this text for us that we might see that Jesus is the true Son of God. And we need you to make that resonate in our hard hearts. Make them soft, Lord. We need, them to, we need that truth to resonate, that Jesus is the Son of God. He came to substitute himself for us. I pray that you'll do that work in us, causing us to hope in Jesus alone. Be with us now. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, um, I, and you didn't catch it on the, on the website, I just kind of caught you up on what was going on in those first verses of Mark. Um, I do encourage you to go back and listen to the audio because Matt did well, way, um, a way more thorough job there. But after his account of John's, John the Baptist's mem- uh, ministry, as I mentioned a second ago, Mark wastes no time in pointing us towards the one um, who is mightier than him. So in verse 9, if you will, open up your Bibles to Mark 1. I'm going to be in this text I'm really friendly today. So... Um, in verse 9, directly after that quotation, um, and that quotation is kind of setting up this question. So, so, John, if there's one mightier than you coming, who is it? Okay, that, that text is kind of setting that up. And in verse 9, Mark writes this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So, He's telling us right there, Jesus is the mightier one. The question was there in John's quotation. And then here, verse 9 is a statement. It's Jesus. Jesus is the mightier one. Mark is prompting that question, as I said. And then in the next verse, Jesus shows up. But that makes us question something, though, because what it says Jesus is doing is going out to the wilderness to be baptized by John. And so we have to wonder, why would he come here? Why would he go there? Why, if Jesus is the mightier one, would he come all the way out to the wilderness to John so that he could get baptized? After all, John himself said, I'm not really worthy to untie his sandals. Um, and, and he said, his baptism, my baptism is with water, and, and the mightier one's baptism is going to be with the Holy Spirit. So we have to wonder, why would he go out there? Um, and the, the truth is, and the thing we can't miss here, is that Jesus didn't necessarily need to be baptized for his own benefit. Um, in fact, Matt reminded me this week of a, a quotation from this author. That he says that Jesus' baptism was the only one where the water got cleaner. And, all right. Um, it's true and funny, okay? Um, but in his baptism, Jesus is acknowledging the judgment of God on Israel. Throughout its history, Israel had turned from God in disobedience over and over. This was the people of God, and they were to be His Son and to follow Him and to to obey His commands. But what they had done was, over and over, chosen to not trust, um, much as we do. So whether it was not trusting God in the Exodus um, or worshiping foreign idols um, once they reached the Promised Land or, or whether it was breaking covenant in numerous other ways that they did so, God's people had disobeyed and were due judgment. And Israel needs forgiveness for their sins, okay? And they needed to truly repent. So in his baptism by John, Jesus 
becomes what all the rest could not become. Okay? He becomes the truly repentant one. He repents for them. And if we're being honest, anytime we repent and anytime we vow to turn away from sin, we still have that tendency in us to want to return to that sin. Okay? And we very rarely truly repent. And when we do, um, it doesn't encompass all of our existence. Okay, and this is the battle that we got to fight all of our lives. But with Jesus, that wasn't the case. He was different. Okay, he didn't sin before his baptism. And I'll save you the suspense of the, the rest of his life. He didn't sin afterwards. Okay, um, but he did repent and he repented for us. And this is incredible news because in his baptism and in his repentance, Jesus is substituting himself for us. And so that's why he got baptized. He did it for us as our substitute. Let me show you where I'm getting this from so you don't just think I'm making it up. Um, if Mark is paralleling verse 5. So if you look at verse 5 there that, uh, from last week where it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. He's paralleling that statement with verse 9 that I'm preaching from right now. Where, he's, where he writes, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And was baptized. Okay, the language, um, a lot of the same words are used there. And he's paralleling that thing and making this, this substitution. He's making it clear to us. Jesus is being baptized for all the people of God. So he's a substitute for us. Now, this is a, this is a, a really cool fact, thing here. He's a substitute for us, not only on the cross. Okay, we, we dig that. We love that he substituted himself for us on the cross. Bearing our wrath um, and the penalty due our sin. We love that here. But one thing that it's easy to miss um, is that he substituted himself for us in his obedience, okay, and in his repentance here. So Jesus, our substitute, is being baptized for us. And this shows off a wonderful truth that's going to be played out through the rest of this gospel. And it's the fact that Jesus' mission was to redeem his people. That's what he came for right here. We don't have to wait until later on to see what it's about, what this is. Jesus guy is about, um, or this Jesus son of God is about, I should say. It's evident right now in the beginning, as we see Jesus substituting himself for others, that he's about redeeming the people of God. He has a mission, and Mark's making that obvious. Okay, so the first, the, the first point that Mark's getting at here is that Jesus is the substitute. Okay, and his second point is that Jesus is the son of God. So if you'll pick up with me in verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he, Jesus, saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So we'll continue working through these verses in order. Um, and just to clarify, the heavens didn't normally split when folks got baptized and walked out of the water. And it's yet to happen at Seven Mile Road when we do baptisms. So... Um, this was a big deal. I mean, that's a making light, but this is a big deal. So they don't normally split, but the heavens did split as Jesus walked up out of the water. Okay, and they split, uh, just like in the first Exodus, the sea split as Moses led his people through. Okay, the, the idea is there. Okay, there's this splitting, this tearing away. And this is so significant. Okay, Israel had not had a prophet or, or the idea of, of heard from God in 400 years before this. And many believe that the Spirit had actually left them. Okay? 
Now, when you're God's people and your identity is wrapped up in being God's people, it's a big deal when he departs from you. Okay? So, these people had some serious anxiety issues. Where is God? We haven't seen him in 400 years. I haven't seen him. My parents haven't seen him. The Spirit has not been here. And not only that, my great-grandparents and their parents didn't see him either. Okay? They haven't seen the prophet. Okay, so the heaven splitting signified a return of the Holy Spirit to Israel and was a signal of a new age of grace to Israel in Jesus. And so this is likely an allusion to the words that Pastor Matt read um, to begin the service today, um, where he read uh, from Isaiah. And in the middle of this long prayer um, for God to be merciful to his people, Isaiah says this, it's Isaiah 64. Um, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Um, and, and rend, like, I, had, I actually looked this up, so I, I thought I knew what rend meant, but I wanted to double check, because I, I don't drop rend a lot. Um, it just doesn't come out. And that means tear and tour. So the idea there is, tear, oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. And it's Isaiah begging for God's mercy. And so, so Isaiah had prayed that. And now it was happening in Jesus. And even more, adding even more beauty to this, is that the word that's used here for splitting, uh, for tearing, splitting the heavens, is used in Mark only one other time. And it's used to describe what happens when the temple uh, veil is torn at the end of the Gospel of Mark. We'll get there months from now. But as Jesus breathes his last on the cross, a, a soldier's looking at the cross and says, truly, this is the Son of God. And, and what happens there is the, the, as Jesus breathed his last, the temple veil was torn in two and the Spirit, um, the Spirit moves from there. And so this is huge for Mark to say this. This word carries great meaning when he says it here. Um, because Mark isn't just saying, look, the sky's torn in two. Like, he's not saying it. That would be a big deal, but he's not just saying that. What Mark is saying is that this is the Son of God. And that's huge. That is huge. And the verse continues on. Um, and, and he saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Our first question to this is often, was it a dove? Like some of you are looking at me like right now. Like, was it? Was it? Was it a dove? Um, there are various ideas about what was up with the dove, and I'm not because I'm not going to end up running through a bunch of examples there because I don't believe that the point of this verse is the type of bird so much. There could be some symbolism with the bird, but I don't think that's the point so much as the fact that the spirit descended. Um, in the context of this passage, when I was just saying about the Spirit returning to Israel, that's big. But even more, there's a sense where the, the bird would have, the dove would have hovered above the water as, as Jesus, as the substitute, was making a new creation uh, of God's people. And so this is hinting back to Genesis 1-2. You don't have to flip over, uh, flip over there, but um, I'll read it out. This is the first verses of our Bible. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
So as you see there in verse in that verse of creation, the spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And I believe that's the idea. I believe that's what's going on here as the dove descends from heaven onto Jesus, um, into Jesus. And and so as this is happening, the people of God, Israel, who have been who are being substituted for by Jesus, new creation is happening in this moment. Okay, so in a sense, um, dawn has come. All right, the long night, the long four hundred years are over. Dawn has come. God's people are being made a new creation in Jesus, and the Spirit is testifying to this as He hovers above the water in His descent. Verse eleven, and a voice came from heaven: "You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased." If you hear nothing else today. You've got to hear this. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. All right, Mark is hammering that over and over in this passage, but he says it most clearly here. Um, because he testifies that a voice from heaven, God's voice, proclaimed to Jesus at his baptism, You are my beloved Son. And there can really be no clearer way of saying this. Like, I tried to think of a more clear way that God could say, this is my son. Um, And I couldn't really come up with anything better than tear the heavens open, hover above the water, and proclaim loudly, this is my beloved son. Can't think of a better way. Okay, so we've got to hear that today. Jesus is the son of God. And it wasn't new to this moment. He didn't become God's son at at this moment. It was eternally so. So God was affirming this truth, not speaking a new one. This is a lot like, it's kind of like, okay, not a lot. It's kind of like when the Red Sox hold a press conference for a new acquisition, like three days after we all know that a deal's been worked, a physical's been completed, a house has been bought, and the Yawkey Waste store has t-shirts in stock. All right, they tend to do that because the news, the, the reporters are so on top of everything. And there's this sense that that press conference is just saying it, is affirming this truth that's already in place. And that's what's happening here. So Jesus has always been the Son of God. But it was important here because this uniquely qualified him for the task um, at hand. In, in the past, in our Bibles, there's, there's really only um, two situations where, where God has referred to anyone as his son. Okay, he did so um, to his people, Israel, referred to them as his people, Israel, in Exodus. And then he also uh, referred to Israel's king um, as his son in, in a psalm. And the interesting thing about that is he had said, you're my son, to those people. But they had rebellious, rebelled against him and done everything to not be his son all along. Okay, so every turn... At every turn, at every chance they had, they would rebel and not be his son. And everything that they had failed in, that means everything they had failed in, Jesus took their place at this moment. Okay? So because Jesus is God's son, he's not acting um, for God, but he's acting as God. And this is going to be clear as we progress through this gospel. And as Matt told us last week, we're going to be confronted with this question by Mark over and over. Who is this? Who is this? And the answer is going to be, this is Jesus. This is the Son of God. 
So through the events of his baptism, Jesus is showing us his sonship. Okay, He shows himself as the substitute for all of God's people and shows that in him new creation has commenced for God's people. It's happening. It's real. Verse 12, something seemingly strange happens, I think. Um, so we'll pick up here and then I'll tell you why I think it's strange. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, why I think it was peculiar is because we don't really expect Jesus to head to the wilderness um, immediately after his baptism, and immediately after the skies open, and immediately after the Spirit descends, and immediately after God's voice proclaims him the Son of God. I, I kind of expect a celebration at that point. But instead, he goes to the desert. And so then we have to ask, why there? Why, why the desert? And that's because the wilderness signifies the place of judgment and curse in our Bibles. Okay? This is where Israel, the wilderness, it's where Israel had spent 40 years after they failed to trust God in his command to enter the promised land. Okay? Um, every year on the Day of Atonement, um, there would be prayer and and. Uh, the priest would lay his hands on, on the scapegoat and sins would be transferred to the scapegoat. And then they would take this, someone would be designated to take the scapegoat out into the wilderness and where the thing would die, okay? Um, after the sins were transferred to it and it was cast out. So in the Bible, the city is equated with civilization and safety and wilderness or the desert is, is a place of, of judgment and of curse. So people can't live there um, because there's no food or water or safety. And, and this is made even worse because the wilderness is also where um, wild animals are. So domesticated animals don't live in the wilderness. You're not likely to run into a well-groomed poodle um, in the wilderness. But you may run into starving, snarling jackals. Okay, So only wild, crazy, and dangerous animals would live there. And... This would have been all the more real to Mark's readers. So we're reading this in 2010. But the truth of this danger would have been all the more real to, to Mark's readers because some of them, like they were undergoing persecution. And some of them were even having animal hides tied to them while wild dogs attacked them and tore them to pieces. Okay, so the, the danger of, the, of this is all too real for them. And if all that wasn't bad enough... The wilderness is where Satan and his demons run wild. Okay? The wilderness was known to be a place of intense attack by the one who opposed God. Um, and this was particularly true for Jesus um, during this 40 days. So having Jesus in the wilderness, Satan was going to throw everything he could at him. Okay? Satan himself was here to tempt Jesus. And this is why Jesus had come. Okay? to defeat Satan and redeem his people. This wasn't to be avoided. Instead, it was to be Jesus' first task after his baptism. And the Spirit had scheduled this and led Jesus here to confront and defeat Satan. Uh, and this is because Adam, our first father, um, and all who came after him, including you and I, had given in to Satan's tactics. Okay, But Jesus, the Son of God, is now tasked with using His Sonship to be obedient to God. 
He was to refuse temptation, instead trusting in the goodness of his father and using his sonship not to rebel like all others had done, but instead to obey and to truly be son. And again, Mark is making clear to us that Jesus is our substitute here. Um, He shows us this by equating his people, God's people, to Jesus by using the number 40. If you notice there in verse 13, it says, And Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. Um, At Mount Sinai, Moses was was with God for 40 days. Um, Elijah, when he got led to Mount Horeb um, for 40 days. Um, So this number is significant. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years waiting to enter the promised land. So by emphasizing 40 days, um, Mark is making it, is working to make it really clear to us that Jesus um, is our substitute. He is the substitute for God's people. Okay, so when he obeyed, God's people obeyed. So regardless of what Jesus went through in the wilderness, he remained the son of God. He proved his sonship, even though his obedience was tested. And, and throughout it all, he was not left alone. Um, the angels were ministering to him, it says at the end of verse 13. So God was sustaining his son through all of this, through all the temptation, through all of everything that was being thrown at him, um, begging him to, uh, to undo and to renounce his sonship. God sustained him with angels that ministered to him. And at the end of it, we get to say, there's Jesus, the true son of God, who obeyed, who did not give in to Satan's tactics. And he's mine. He's my substitute. So Jesus is the Son of God from eternity past to eternity future. Regardless of Satan's ploys, tactics, and strategies, Jesus remained obedient. Even to death on a cross, which is where we're headed 15 chapters from now. Even then, Jesus was obedient. And His obedience is ours through faith because He's our substitute. Um, A few weeks ago, as I was talking with someone about our faulty doorbell, um, I mentioned that if I wasn't so cheap, I might get a video camera. Um, But I am cheap, so I just don't answer the door. But um, if I bought the video camera, I could see who was at the door um, before I ran all the way down there. And in the text today, Mark made it clear to us that John's alarm was not false. He was alarming us to the coming of Jesus, to the coming of the Son of God. He made it really clear who was there. He made it really clear that he was preparing us for Jesus. Because Jesus is the mightier one. He is the one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus, his his sandals aren't worthy to be touched by John. John's baptism was with water. Jesus is with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the mightier one. The one who was foretold that would come to save God's people. And he's our substitute. He was baptized in repentance for the forgiveness of our sins. He was our substitute in the wilderness as he was tempted by Satan and confronted by all the difficulty that Satan could offer him. Jesus was and is obedient to all that God the Father commands. And he substituted himself, er, himself for us in that. He's done for His people. He's done for you and for me what we desperately needed. We desperately needed that. But we couldn't do it. And He's done that. He has willingly come and willingly obeyed 
so that we might be made new and so that we might be sons of God eternally. The Son of God has come to earth. He has substituted Himself for you in life and in death, if you'll believe. So the application today, so simple. So simple. Won't you give up hoping in less? Won't you hope in Jesus? Won't you hope in Him, the Son of God, obedient, that you might be eternally Son of God? Pray with me. Spirit, I pray that you would cause us to respond rightfully to the truth that Jesus is Son of God. Don't allow us to look at this truth and be passive or ignore it. And don't allow us to turn from this truth, but instead cause us to embrace it. Fill us up with joy that the Son of God came and substituted Himself for us, that we might live, that we might have eternal sonship. I beg that You would be really good to us in that, that You would make our hearts soft to the truth, and that You would stir up great, great affections for You in us. Be with us, Lord, we beg and pray. Amen.